0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Telling me I've got to beware.
2: So, what's interesting is that once he asked me about what happened in the first edition, um, I said, well, it's right here, page 630 to 660. And I pull it up, and I find out that in this bound version of the book I have, there is nothing between 630 and 660. There are no pages. They're completely missing. The very pages that describe the suppression of the first book, first edition.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Gerard Colby. Today's show, DuPont, The Secret Political Power. Gerard Colby is a freelance investigative journalist, author, and educator. He is the author of DuPont Dynasty, Behind the Nylon Curtain, co-author with Charlotte Dennett of Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller, and Evangelism in the Age of Oil, and a contributor to Into the Buzzsaw, Leading Journalists Expose the Myth of a Free Press, edited by Christina Borgeson. He is a past president of the National Writers' Union. Jerry Colby, welcome. Hello. How are you? Well, I'm pretty good, uh, (laughs) considering. You write that in the year 2000, the DuPonts celebrated their 200th year in America. Mm -hmm. Now a financial dynasty with a new corporate hierarchy, they are the richest family on earth, a family with a corporate empire that stretches over six continents of the world. The DuPonts of Delaware own more personal wealth and control more multimillion-dollar corporations than any one family in the world. They employ more servants than Britain's royal family, own more yachts, cars, swimming pools, planes, and estates than any family in recorded history. Your book, The DuPont Dynasty, Behind the Nylon Curtain, took five years to research and three years to write. When was your book on the DuPonts first published, and how was it received?
2: Well, the first edition came out in 74, the second edition came out in 84, and the uh, current edition, which was uh, just last year, came with a new introduction. the 74 book uh, uh, required me to go and move to Delaware and do my research there. And after I finished, um, I asked them for interviews. No one accepted. I went ahead and did the writing that I could, having done also research at the family library, the Lutheran Mills-Sagley Foundation Library, above the Brandywine, old Brandywine mills, the gunpowder mills that the family had uh... In Delaware. So it turned out that uh, as I was doing so, they launched an investigation of me. And I uh, got a knock on the door one day from a fellow who identified himself as a former Air Force uh, man who was now writing a piece for Ramparts magazine and gave me the name of a very good friend of mine, a writer in uh, Dover, Delaware. And uh, I checked him out and he said, Yeah. So I let him have access for this article in Ramparts to my files. It turned out he was not writing an article for Ramparts. I'd never heard of him. and I should have called them directly. Um, but to make a long story short, he was actually an informer, a uh, former Mil- Air Force intelligence officer who uh, was gaining access to my material and then turning over information on it to Richmond Williams, who was at that time director of the Lutheran Mills Hegley Foundation library now the library is a is a place where the Duont family uh, uh have stored all their family records from their first report card right up to their death certificate, including their correspondence um uh, and uh, uh, but I didn't know that it became an ongoing intelligence center for the family and this information then went right back to family members of the um uh, uh, the foundation that controlled it. And uh, then uh, the next thing I knew is that uh, when the book was being announced, uh, behind my back, this fellow had enlisted my literary agent to write a book to respond to mine when it came out. Um, my literary agent, I will freely tell his name, was Oscar Collier. He was subsequently removed from the Society of Authors' Representatives, uh, mostly for that reason. And uh, he um, then proceeded to start to write. And meantime, my book was about to come out. It was announced by um, Prentice Hall, who was the original publisher. And um, they were having a, a big fanfare about it. Interestingly enough, somebody in the company ordered a local salesman to deliver an unedited manuscript of the book to a DuPont family-connected uh, bookstore. It was a bookstore that had been owned by one of the DuPont family members. It was right around the area, around where the DuPont headquarters is. And um, then, lo and behold, in walked uh, a man uh, who was a major DuPont figure who uh, picked it up, a DuPont family member now. And then delivered it right up to Dupont headquarters to the office of Irène Dupont Jr., who was the family patriarch at the time. Irène was senior vice president of Dupont Company and decided to use the company's resources to carry out this campaign against the book. And uh, had a meeting with the public relations office. And the next thing we know is that he flew all. The only reason we know all this is because. I sued them in federal court, and through discovery, we got a lot of documents. And then we went down to Delaware and took their testimonies. Uh, it turns out that the book was then actually had an index um, developed, apparently by someone in Premise Hall, for them to look at. And the uh, they went through the book, and this is before the public has even seen the book. And uh, then a series of threatening phone calls came down from the dupont uh, public relations office to book of the month club that's because book of the month club had selected it for its fortune book club and somehow they found oh yes i know they found that because uh it was mentioned in the release by premise hall so um they called the book actionable scurrilous had been looked by the family and uh, the warning was clear and in 24 hours in an unprecedented decision by Book of the Month Club. In such a short period of time, they decided to kill the contract. which point, uh, Prentice Hall officials got a hold of this information. They, were, of course, were told that, and they called DuPont. And DuPont denied that they were threatening anything. And the next thing you know, um, it's kicked upstairs, the Prentice Hall executives, and they decide they're going to kill the book off. And the way it's done in the industry... Uh, is they don't announce it, that it's being killed off, of course. That would be a breach of contract. So what they do is they privish the book. That's the term used to privately publish a book rather than publicly publish. And what that means is that you go through the, uh, the normal um, actions that give the impression that they're living up to the contracts. But in reality, behind the scenes, they, they cut this print run, by one third, so that, in their own words, it could not price profitably according to any conceivable formula. They cut the advertising, they cut the uh, the tour, the book promotion tour. That's part of the contract, and they uh, at that point they they were deciding to just let this book die. So, so at that point, I had, was completely in the dark, and all months went by. And finally, my editor over at many martinis uh, couldn't take it anymore, and he spilled the beans to me. And I said, Look, his uh, name was Bram Cabin, very decent man. I said to Bram, uh, I said, Look, um, fine, you know, do the Ponds feel that way, that's fine. Let's go into a press conference. Let them come forward. And uh, and instead, he said, Well, the company's not going to do that. And right away, I realized something was up with the company. At that point,
0: in um, the we, And the company you're talking about is uh, Prentice Hall. Prentice right. Hall, excuse yeah. me, yes. Yeah.
2: And, and at that point, we had tried to touch base with uh, a John Tompkins, who is a top journalist for uh, uh, Fortune magazine. Tompkins wrote a very interesting piece. I know I saw part of it. Um, he contacted Book of the Month Club, contacted Prentice Hall, contacted Is it Bond? wrote a real meaty story about this, and um, next thing you know, they decided to kill it. The publisher wrote uh, a of fortune, a fortune magazine. So the next thing that happens is that the book is taking off anyway, and they don't know what to do, apparently, because it got a rave review, two-page, full New York Times uh, Sunday book section review of the book, calling it something of a miracle, and on whacking sculpture on the side of the mountain, talking about promoting himself a little bit, but it actually happened. And they were very. And the New York Times revealed later on that they had come under pressure from, from right after that review appeared, by Dupont Company officials, saying, uh, you know, you don't know anything about journalism. You should sign it to someone that uh, knows something also about business and we don't think there's anything new in the book at all, which is the standard line when someone, you know, doesn't want to pay attention to anything that's written in it. And it turned out that uh, New York Times editors uh, actually stood up to them and said, uh, look, if you want to come up and talk about this, but otherwise we don't agree with you. We think there's a lot in it that's completely different. And they responded and said, oh, no. And then they wrote in their private memorandum that's the best that they could probably get out of them. Well, At that point, not knowing that this was all going on, but emboldened by the New York Times review and the rave reviews it was getting around the country, that uh, uh, Prentice Hall's own attorney, chief counsel by the name of William Daly, couldn't take it anymore. He had never seen anything like this in his entire career. And he said, anyway, uh, and he picked up his file and did something that... Legally, he could have probably could have been disbarred for. I don't know why he did it, but he did it because he wanted to get the truth out, I guess. And he went down to the New York Times with the file and turned it over to Alden Whitman. And Alden Whitman wrote up the story, which appeared in late January of 1975. On the same day that another story appeared about how DuPont had put pressure. Uh, the DuPont family put pressure to eliminate some of the top editors and, and, and journalists at the Wilmington News Journal, which they controlled, because they were getting too close to the family and starting to talk about what was going on with the family. So at that point, um, uh, meantime, the book has been out, and people are ordering more copies, and they can't get them from Prentice Hall. So the book is essentially dead. It dies. You know, impulse dying around Christmas time is key. So I then went back to my literary agent, and I said, not you know, completely innocently, and I said to him, you know, well, we've got to fight back. We've got to do something. And he tells me, well, Chair, the book has had its run. Well, to tell you a little, subsequently happened within months, my editor was fired. Um, he was replaced by my literary agent <laughs> as a senior editor at Premise Hall. Yeah. So it's a small world. Uh, so what I did is then, um, eventually, after a year of trying to uh, deal with this issue, through other literary agents, I decided to go to settle court and challenge them. So I filed a breach of contract against Prentice Hall and an inducement of breach of contract, legal action against DuPont. That's... that... Um, resulted in my going down to Delaware, taking testimony of everybody, including the governor of Delaware, and uh, and uh, dealing with a lot of a lot of problems, lots of money, course, pretty much almost bankrupted, well, bankrupted me and my wife really, and it turned out that we uh, ended up uh, getting back the rights to the book. Uh, as well as a decision by the uh, lower court, the federal district court, that Prentice Hall had indeed been guilty of privishing the book. Now, but he let Dupont off. Now, here's an interesting story about that. There I am in the middle of the trial, and Aaron A. Dupont Jr. gets up onto the stand wearing his Dupont belt buckle which is very proud. Of. <laughs>
0: he has a DuPont belt buckle. Belt
2: buckle. Yes. <laughs> I, I remarked I said I really like your, your belt buckle uh, when he came in for his deposition with it. And he said, "Yes, I'm very proud of it."
0: <laughs> what does it say? Better living through chemistry.
2: Yes, that's right. Better living as a DuPont through chemistry. <laughs> uh so he went into um uh he went into his discussion in the court and then he was trying to read a document. And the judge, who's the third judge we have been given, two had recused themselves, uh, one actually after being on the, on the case for a year, and then suddenly discovered the other conflict of interest. And this last judge was Charles Bryant, who's not with us anymore. And uh, Bryant uh, got up from the diet, you know, where, where the judge sits, and came down the stairs and walked over the A and turned on the light for him. <laughs> and I turned to my attorney and I said, Big trouble, boy. <laughs> well, the day before the trial ended, the judge called all the, all the counsel into his chambers and wagged, uh, he wagged his finger at my attorney and said, I'm not going to find a pillar of American society guilty for merely expressing their point of view about a book about them. But my attorney turns and says, but your honor, this was also scurrilous, actionable. That's a threat of lawsuit. That's more than just expressing a point of view. And he says, well, I don't care. This is uh, I'm not going to buy this as an inducement of future contract, and I'm not going to find a pillar of American society guilty of anything. So that's that. But you, you, he says to Prentice Hall, the judge says. You, if you're going to publish a book like this, you're going to publish it, you're not going to privish it. So, of course, Prentice Hall immediately scurried back after that conference, made a bunch of phone calls, their lawyers did, and they came to me and, they, and my attorney, and they said, Well, look, we'll settle with you. <laughs> and they were willing to pay me essentially the equivalent of what we had paid to get up to this point uh, in legal course. And uh, the only proviso was that I keep my mouth shut about what had happened and what had gone on.
0: That's always the case with these uh, kind of, of cases, isn't yes.
2: it? Yes, and I, I, I turned around and I said, forget it. Mm-hmm. So the next day, uh, the trial ended, and sure enough, Charles Bryan came down finding Prentice Wall guilty. Well, First Hall appealed. We appealed on the DuPont uh, decision against us, and uh, that went up to the Appeals Court. Which voice There were three judges there, and um, my attorney walked up and saw two of them scowling, and one of them, Sterry Waterman of Vermont, I will say unfortunately is sleeping <laughs> literally nodding off his of sleep. And his his clerk came up to me years later at a Vermont Bar Association dinner and said to me how apologetic he felt about all this and I really hadn't gotten my shot in court. Well of course the two other judges, one had been appointed by Nelson Rockefeller and the other one had been um, had clerked for a judge uh in Delaware who had just been charged with uh, suppressing Evidence of Asbestos Poisoning of DuPont Workers, something which I talked about in my, in my book, too. And so he think he might recuse himself for a bit of a conflict of interest, but he didn't, and wrote a scathing review, reversing the award I had won from uh, Prentice Hall, uh, wagging his finger and calling the book, attacking it for political reasons. And uh, at that point, the ACLU stepped in. And by the way, it was dismissed. So we appealed then to the Supreme Court. Um, Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard stepped in and thought this was an outrage, and they took the case to the Supreme Court on the grounds that the judge now had become a censor um, uh, against the first... And there was no... No error of fact, no error of law, uh, standards, or anything that he had found. Instead, it was just his political opinion. Because of the um, political view of this this book, um, obviously non establishment, um, it would never find uh, a market in the United States, even though all of the all the um, sales records of predators said otherwise. So all I can tell you is that it got as far as as far as the Rehnquist court, and then the Rehnquist court refused to hear it. Rehnquist being one of my favorite people, as yes, you can gather.
0: I'm speaking with freelance investigative journalist and author Gerard Colby. Today's show, DuPont, The Secret Political Power. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: So uh, as a result of that, um, however, the second edition came into being, Around the same year that that decision came down, um, another edition came out. I had won back the rights to the book. My uh, publisher was Lyle Stewart of uh, New Jersey, formerly of New York. Uh, Lyle uh, came forward and said, look, uh, I'll do everything to support you on this, and all you have to do is write your heart out, bring things up to date. So I did. I wrote another 400 pages. He put it all together. And it came out with a full-page ad in the New York Times.
0: Now, Jerry, Uh, are we in the 1980s now? We're
2: now in 1984.
0: Okay, so like 10 years later.
2: That's correct. The whole court case went up in actually 77 to 81. Then the first decision came down in 81, and then the uh, appeals court provisions all went right up to the Supreme Court, up to 84. So at that same year, a new edition of the book comes out with Lyle Stewart. And, um, you know, it was a pretty good addition, I must say. There was a lot more in there. Brought it up to the involvement in pushing for the elimination of the Glass-Steagall Act, Pierre de preparations for his campaign for the presidency in 1988, which indeed came about, the move against environmental laws, the, the involvement with the CIA in the Contra War, all the evidence is there in the book, as well as the discussion about what happened to the first book. Naming names bringing it all forward and backing up with court documents. So lo and behold, there I am, um, suddenly, Lyle Stewart gets a phone call. And it's from Prentice Hall. They say, we want to come down and depose you. And Prentice Hall, and Lyle Stewart says, why? He says, because we want to know something about that. We're trying to get back court course from Colby. Now, <laughs> this is the first time I'd heard about it. So um, they show up, and they start to ask questions. Lyle brings down Joe Rowell's law firm, a very famous firm in New York. And uh, they start asking questions. They want a copy of the names of his jobbers and a copy of the manuscript. And he turns to them and says, this is obviously an attempt to interfere with this book. And he says, and by the way, who are these two other men that just walked through the door and are sitting in the back? And they, oh, says Prentice Hall, uh, that's Dupont. We thought they'd be interested in this. He says, ha uh-huh. Joe Rao turns in and says, we're out of here. And they walked out on him. And Rao put out in his newsletter what had happened. But it never got into the press. So the next thing, the book comes out, a uh, full-page ad, like I said, and it's and he's starting to collect orders. He's happy as... As can be, and I'm down at the financial news network on Wall Street, explaining uh, in an interview what happened to uh, the first edition, and uh, uh, after they asked me about it, and explaining also some of the machinations of the family around moving out and in and out of the company, and buying up Conoco, content law oil company, and other things. So what's interesting is that once he asked me about what happened in the first edition, um, I said, well, it's right here, on page 630 to 660. And I pull it up, and I find out that in this bound version of the book I have, there is nothing between 630 and 660. There are no pages. They're completely missing. The very pages that describe the suppression of the first book, first edition. So I get off... I do my Jackie Gleason go ha 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 you know and we talked about other things and I got off and I got on the phone and talked to Char and my wife and I said, uh, Char, um, these pages are missing from the. Could you take a look at the books that uh, Lyle gave us? Uh, and she did and she came back and said that there were ten copies. She said yeah, Jerry, sure, about three of them don't don't have any of those pages. I said what? Call Lyle. Lyle says I'll check into it immediately. Calls the warehouse. They discovered that of the 10,000 print run, uh, one quarter of them had been damaged by that, so that orders could not be filled. I asked who printed this book, and he tells me the name of the company. and um, uh, I'll look into this jury, and next thing you know, the same exact thing is happening to this edition, because orders that are coming in can't be fulfilled. After a while, people wait long enough. They said well, they're going to go somewhere else.
0: Wow!
2: So that book died. He tells me uh, when he finally gets gets back to me, he says to me, "Well, the book, well, I can tell you, Jerry, is that the publisher gets? We now discover gets eighty percent of their business from Prentice Hall. <laughs> so at that um. point, I, um, I." didn't hang up my spurs but I certainly uh, was much I could do about a book that people can't buy so I went through a personal effort to promote the book and uh, next thing uh, the book was dead then uh, years later
0: But, well, wait a minute. So then you don't have any legal standing? I mean, you couldn't force them to reprint the book? I mean, somebody has to be held accountable, don't they, for the fact that the run was ruined?
2: Yeah, that's what you would think. But wives would die then. Oh. And then on his, his court records, in his estate, titles, because he owed some money, titles were transferred over to other publishing houses, we got a complete list through the National Writers' Union of all the uh, names of, of the books that were transferred, but my book was not one of them. So I waited to see if there anything from his, his wife known, and then I tried to contact them, and I didn't get any response. So at that point, I was on another, uh, another case. I was desperately trying to finish another book. On the CIA and the Amazon, <laughs> another another happy topic, and uh, in the course of doing so, um, I, I at least held the electronic rights, and lo and behold, here we are, 20 years later, 30 years later, and I'm approached to write another another introduction for an e an electronic version of the book, and that's what we have now.
0: What a story! It's really unbelievable. And of course, if this has happened to you, it must have happened to others as well.
2: As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons I was involved in helping found, with my colleagues, the National Writers Union in 1981. Uh, American Writers Congress had been had been formed. Uh, we expected about maybe 300 writers, and said about uh, 3,000 of them showed up. And out of that, we formed the National Writers Union which became affiliated later with the the United Auto Workers. And we were fighting for freelance rights, including the promotional rights, fulfillment contractual obligations and so on. It's a very big difficult industry to take on. The publishing industry has never been unionized except in a couple of a couple of the publishing houses, some of the typists but have been organized. But other than that, there is no trade union representation to speak of in the publishing industry. And uh, they run the show, and they dictate terms to authors. As a matter of fact, one of the issues was around electronic rights, where we, they was, the publishers, were starting to uh, take our electronic rights and resell them over the Internet and, uh, without any compensation to us. Mm. And we uh, didn't believe that when we signed a print contract that, it is, that included electronic rights, we went to the federal courts again, and this time, with a union behind me and behind others, authors, we won. The Supreme Court came down with a decision saying electronic rights are the rights of the authors, and a separate contract has to be negotiated for them. Mm. Well, then the publishers just simply turn around and, and instituted an all-rights contract. In other words, if you want to get published at all, and they all do this now, you have to surrender all your rights, including electronic rights. And I've heard these words throughout the world and in the universe in all future formats to be invented. Oh. So, <laughs> so welcome to the world of freelance writers.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because people look at the Internet as this a beacon of freedom, but it sounds to me like they're covering themselves on that, if yeah, you want to get published at all.
2: Yeah, well, they're moving very fast. They, they want it all locked up behind them.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: Even though there's copyright law that says it's in the hands of the author, you know, but they they just are muscling over everything as fast as they can.
0: Well, now, I've been reading your e-version, of course, of the DuPont dynasty, and that is over 800 pages long and extremely comprehensive. It really includes a whole history of the United States. How did you first become interested in the DuPont family? <laughs>
2: Well, I was working for a congressman as his press secretary, John Dow of New York, in 1968. He was a supporter of Bobby Kennedy, and I had done a little organizing for Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign uh, when John asked me to take on the position. And he was the congressman in my district, and I said, uh, sure, did so. um, And in the course of doing so, we also researched who he was obviously uh, running against the guy who was challenging him for the Congressional seat, and John was an anti-war congressman, was a former commandant of of the American Legion. And uh, going through his donations that had just become available, I I noticed quite a few checks written out out of Delaware. (laughs) So I got me interested. And then I realized that the DuPonts, uh, uh, since the uh, riots that accompanied Martin Luther King's assassination in March of that year. Would you remember those $50 million worth of damages in Detroit? Well, in Wilmington, Delaware, it was 50000 <laughs> But it so scared, the establishment in Delaware, that they call out the National Guard. In that time, in the process of Going through what would become the longest peacetime occupation of an American city by armed troops. (laughs) The the National Guard running up and down the black, I shouldn't laugh at this, up and down the black and uh, Hispanic community with machine guns mounted on top of jeeps. Uh, A real terror campaign. And people were being killed, and it became a national scandal. But I was very interested in this family. I started to look more into them, and I found out they were the original Gunpowder Trust. They were the ones who uh, made 250 million dollars off World War One and war contracts um, in profits. That uh, they built their chateaus and uh, huge estates in uh, northern Delaware and the rolling hills of uh, fox hunting country, and um, uh, and were called a species of outlaw by even the Secretary of War, Newton Baker, for overcharging for the explosives. They provided uh, a huge percentage of the explosives that were fired by the Allies in World War I. Then they went on to make this similar gains. So anyway, I read more and more about this. Family. I said, oh, my God, what's going on here? So anyway, after John lost that election, uh, we just couldn't match a lot of those funds. Um, then I, uh, I, went, uh, I went back to school. I had taken a, a leave and was expecting to go into the draft. But fortunately, the draft decided otherwise, and I ended up outside uh, waiting to figure out what I'm going to do and decided then I would go to Delaware and research to see if there was a book here in the family. And sure enough, when I got there, I wasn't there more than, I'd say, six months when I, I discovered so much that I realized this is a story that has to be told. It's a family that considers themselves the armors of the republic and alias the Guardians of the Republic, very, very right-wing, conservative, a family that never made a graduation politically into what the high finance people do. You know, they become more liberal, they have more, more, a lot more flexibility to move their capital around, but that's not the same with a family that's an industrial gentry and can't move beyond their industry, and the that never gained control of a major bank, even though they sat on some of the boards of them. They held a minority controlling interest. And as you know, in a major corporation, it's very, very hard to do anything without making sure that you have enough support on a board. A 5% holding, according to Congressman Wright Patman of the Banking Committee, was a controlling interest in the company. So I looked into those and I found oh my God, the family is the wealthiest family in America at that time. 1984, they're not the wealthiest today, but they were the wealthiest then at $10 billion. Nobody compared to them. So uh, right-wing politics, right old, the they always wanted to reverse the New Deal, which they never accepted, even though one of their family members married uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Jr. But they were uh, absolutely uh, livid about uh, Roosevelt and the New Deal and the reforms for labor, reforms for uh, banking, including the Glass-Steagall Act, which prevented commercial banks from speculating in the stock market. As you know, that was repealed, and the Depants were involved in in encouraging its being repealed by uh, Congress. And um, the result is that, uh, well, I'll tell you, it goes even further, because when I finished that book, and I was in the middle of all this. I, uh, I knew in '84, and I wrote about it, that Pete DuPont was making his move for the presidency. Well, he had a foundation, a fundraising foundation, Gold Pack.
0: Now, Pete yeah. DuPont at that time was what? Was he the governor of, that's of right. uh, Delaware? Yeah,
2: that's absolutely correct. He was the governor of Delaware. He had been congressman. He had actually been involved in some of the uh, operations around... Uh, of. A tax on the book when the book came out in Delaware and became a number one bestseller, and there was a whole campaign that was raised against the uh, publisher of the Delaware State News, the only non-Dupont daily newspaper in the state, who had published a serial version of it. And um, uh, this all came out later in the in the course of the investigation around the trial. But uh, the key here is that. Pete DuPont was then making his move, and he um, decided to turn GOPAC, the government, I uh, think, government of the people action committee, I think you called it, GOPAC, over to a rising star uh, who shared his his right wing views, and that was a man by the name of Newt Gingrich. And then he went on uh, and encouraged Newt to expand it and develop it, and the Devant family was bankrolling it. And uh, he went on to uh, run for the presidency in 1988. He lost. His platform, however, was adopted pretty much by by Newt Gingrich in the House of Representatives and became the basis of what later was known as the Contract with America, although I would call it the Contract on America. He was instrumental, of course, in the 1994 so-called Republican revolution that put Newt Gingrich into the Speaker's position. So a lot of people don't realize that, that behind all this attacks on New Deal reforms uh, all these years has been not only the, uh, the DuPonts, but they've also been behind Newt Gingrich, too. So um, they have pretty much succeeded, in, except for Labor, uh, although they really have curtailed a lot on that end. Uh, and the more that they can attack the unions in this country, there is no other defense against the closing of plants, the lowering of wages, the layoffs of workers, the deindustrialization of America that has taken place, uh, except in a very high tech form or in the low-paced service. But there's no question that the technological unemployment that's going on is being hidden in the United States in the ghettos although it's now spreading out into the uh, white suburbs as well, and we're seeing the restlessness that's going on in the country right now.
0: I'm speaking with freelance investigative journalist and author Gerard Colby. Today's show, DuPont, The Secret Political Power. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. DuPont is a name commonly associated with paint, nylon, and chemicals. How outdated is this description?
2: (laughs) Quite. Actually, they started out in munitions. They were the biggest munitions maker in the United States. In the 1930s, they were engaged in contracts with companies like IG Farben, which was then known to be rearming the Wehrmacht of Hitler. They um, moved into nylon and chemicals in the 19, um, and General Motors, uh, just before World War I. By the uh, 1920s, one of them, Pierre de Pont II, had become chairman of uh, General Motors. His treasurer, John J. Roskob, became a major figure in the Finance Committee of of General Motors as well. They then were involved in fighting against the unionization of the UAW, by the UAW, and the great sit-down strike. Fortunately, uh, President Roosevelt said, no, uh, we're not going to call the troops out on these people. And the DuPonts were forced out of active management. They handed it over to um, the guy's name, escapes me right now, but they did retain their holding until the antitrust suit was brought against them by the Supreme Court. So they've been in motors. They've been in U.S. Steel as well. They left there. Uh, they were in um, aviation. As a matter of fact, we have a guy up here uh, called Tony DuPont, Anthony DuPont. He's actually an older member of the Klan of the who was running for the House of Representatives. Fortunately, he was defeated. The family then moved into finance as much as they could, which was only their local bank, and Trust which became the subject of a, um, uh, a lot of problems after the 2008 financial crisis which was hidden from the uh, from the public when uh, they were trying to decide how they were going to find a bailout on this and um, uh, eventually what they did they got out of Wilmington Trust uh, the public really didn't know about how bad the condition was of the bank and then uh, uh, the family then has moved on into clipping coupons and bonds. and The other part, however, is the company has moved also into genetically modified uh, seeds. Now, they still have a holding in, in DuPont, uh, but uh, interestingly enough, the major holding is now by uh, major uh, venture capital uh, funds. They're essentially now just collecting the dividends, maybe diversifying their holdings again. As you know, they they were involved for a while in Phillips Petroleum, the Continental Oil Company, all, all sorts of banks, but they had never controlled a major bank, and still don't. You probably know about the genetic about the seed question and how that's created uh, a lot of controversy again about this so-called second green revolution, selling seeds at an expensive price to governments who then, in developing countries, who then pay for the seeds with subsidies and grants from the Agency for International Development, in other words, the U.S. taxpayer, and then they distributed them at a discounted amount to the to the farmers, who were then told that they have to realize that they cannot uh, reproduce these seeds, that they're under control of the uh, of DuPont Company. The uh, other part is they're involved in politics. Uh, apparently, they have been involved in defeating the California label labeling law. Oh,
0: they really? Still... I didn't know that. Yeah, Proposition 37, I think it That's was. That's right.
2: That's right. What, involved... they put
0: money into that?
2: That's right. And through trade associations. You know, this is a company that will not go away, and the family, it's still based in of course, Wilmington, Delaware. And the family is still very much involved in building its its fortune and, therefore, its wealth and its power. People think they can walk away from these people or just ignore them as they get their wealth as long as the pie gets bigger for everybody else. But now we know not only is the pie not getting bigger for everybody else, as they expand their interests abroad, but more importantly, that wealth is not neutral. It turns into power for these people, which makes... People are now waking up to what they call the 1% of America that controls so much of its wealth and power. DuPont, by the way, was second in the uh, second largest donor to uh, lobbying efforts for the uh, GMO legislation. They gave $4 million on that, right behind Monsanto.
0: What do you mean, the legislation that would uh, legalize the GMOs?
2: It was actually to defeat the California's GM labeling law. That's what I'm talking about.
0: Oh, I see. I see. Now everyone knows uh, about Monsanto, and right, that's but they very... don't know about
2: DuPont. No,
0: I've okay. never heard that about DuPont. Yeah, I've had
2: I've had people because they're very secretive company. They're very careful about what they do. Their PR division is very good. Uh, I knew one one of my best friends in Delaware worked with with them for 35 years. He was so disgusted. That he gave me his GM pin that they gave him with his pension. Uh, very decent man by the name of Ted Keller, who headed up the Delaware Coalition for Tax Reform, trying to go after the punts and uh, the banks who had been given a huge tax break when they all moved in. You know, they, you know the uh, escalating rates of credit cards and all that that you're getting right now. A lot of this comes out of Delaware. Uh, Governor DuPont pushed through a law that was actually written by uh, lawyers for J.P. Morgan & Company and Chase Manhattan. I think it was called the Financial Improvement Act, or something along those lines. Anyway, it allowed for interstate banking out of Delaware for credit card companies who could actually increase uh, interest rates retroactively. So, um,
0: And now, if it was uh, Governor DuPont... Who put it through? Then you're talking about back in the 1980s.
2: Yeah, talking back in the 80s, and then it spread throughout the country from there. I had a big battle here in in Vermont over it too.
0: Yes, well, now uh, Delaware is a credit card company Haven, isn't it? Yeah,
2: as a result of that bill.
0: And now Joe Biden, of course, he he represented Delaware, right, Mm -hmm. in the Senate, and then what? His son, Beau Biden, wasn't he Attorney General in Delaware?
2: That's correct. Uh, and he was attorney general at the time when, um, also when a uh, guy by the name of Richards, who is a DuPont, got off for twice for molesting two of his, sexually molesting two of his children. <laughs> and they, they decided to let him off, even though he had been found guilty twice. And he wasn't given a, uh, a court sentence, it would be just, they couldn't figure out how he would be helped by jail time.
0: Well, now, with regard to Joe Biden, then-Senator Joe Biden, there was a, a very famous a change in the bankruptcy laws, as I recall, uh, when he was representing Delaware. And Joe Biden was instrumental in this change in the bankruptcy laws. Now, what does that have to do with Delaware? Were the DuPonts involved in that?
2: Ponts are involved in everything up there. They control the... Uh, the legal system to the delaware bar association the head of it in, the, in those days was edmund carpenter who was a dupont uh, Edmund carpenter was involved also in my case um, uh, It's another little story but i'll let you pass on that one uh. but uh... they're very powerful by the way they're in they gave they gave money mostly to republicans but sometimes to democrats as well but very seldom uh... It's mostly mostly uh... republicans they control A good part of the politics in the 80s, 90s, and right up until this period, it's it's really very clear that they still have a lot of influence um, and will continue to have influence over the political process in Delaware.
0: You write that, quote, it is a syndrome, this reliance on the wealthy to run the economy and control government policies, long seen in American society. How much power has the DuPont family had over the U.S. economy? And we're talking about 200 years here.
2: Hmm. Well, you become the wealthiest family of America by the 1980s by obviously being involved at the heart. Of the American economy, uh, if you're involved in gunpowder, that ultimately started to lead them to experiments in cellulose. Cellulose, in turn, uh, led them into plastics. Plastics, in turn, led them into nylon. Nylon, uh, you know, is very useful in war, war contracts for everything from parachutes to whatever you want to m- imagine. But more importantly is that the family was able to use its money to branch into, like I said, U.S. Steel, United Fruit Company, um, the very famous company that pulls off coups in the banana republics of Central America if it couldn't get away with it, um, General Motors, uh, Hercules Powder, Atlas Chemicals, and a slew of other companies that uh, are identified. There is, I think, a real of maybe 40, 50, um, probably even more than that, uh, identified in the book. So if they can influence a judge merely by their name in New York, supposedly, I don't believe it, but supposedly has liberal uh, courts, judges, um, you can imagine what they do. You know, they sat on the first national City Bank, which became Citicorp. They sat on the board of uh, Chemical Bank, Uh, they have the power through not only purchasing stock but also making deposits by DuPont Company. And, you know, when they drop, you know, $40, $50 million on a deposit inside a bank, it gives them power. They'll even have to sit on the board if they don't want to. And on top of that, they have, you know, this family's been around for, uh, you know, over 200 years now. They've married into some of the wealthier families in, in the United States, at least. Well, for instance, they married into um, the Bissell family. They married into the Bancrofts, the Deans, the Stablers, the Edmonds, the Lairs, the Dardens. You know, Darden was governor of Darden of uh, Virginia and sat on the board of Newport Shipbuilding uh, Company. They married into the Carpenters, who in turn are married into the Phelps and the Morgans. It's a, it's a small world. It's a small world. The Sharps, the Byers, the Evans, the Grades the Potters, and if you go through the list of the companies um, that are involved with them, you can see uh, not only where their uh, instruments are that they can switch off and on, but also they're in some key industries. For instance, they ran into atomic energy. They were the ones who built, helped build, I'll put it that way, um, the atomic bomb for the Manhattan Project. As a matter of fact, in deep water Um, The Deepwater Plant in New Jersey, if you ever go over the Delaware Memorial Bridge heading south, if you look directly to your right, you'll see this city of lights right by the river. Well, that's the DuPont uh, Deepwater Plant. In the 1920s, it was exposed by Nation magazine but other sources as being the source of what they called uh, poisoning of, of DuPont workers. Matter of fact, I had a reputation called the House of Butterflies because the workers, not realizing they were being poisoned by the fumes, were reaching up and trying to grab butterflies that didn't exist. Some of them who died were rushed off to a local local hospital in Salem, New Jersey. Uh, that the family had and the company had given them money. It was all hush hush until finally the nation and other sources broke it. That plant then became the center of the production for uh, the actual uh, uranium work that was done for the atomic bomb during World War II. That plant still now is, is listed as one of the major um, and most serious cleanup sites for the EPA. And as you see, how many years, we're still waiting for them to clean it up. I don't know if they ever will. They also ran the Hanover plant up in Washington which was the uh, the big nuclear production plant up there.
0: Well, yes, now that's the nuclear plant that's on the Columbia River, right? That's correct. I mean, that's still there, isn't it?
2: Yes, it's still there, but I'm not sure if it's still functioning. Uh, the same is true of the Savannah River plant, uh, where there have been spills into the river. Um, but you can go right through. I mean, I can take you up on a tour of Delaware a River itself and just point out one DuPont plant after another. Plants that had been charged with being the, the largest polluters in the United States, dropping everything from PCBs to, well, you can imagine, you know, heavy metals. And that's true also over in uh, Ohio and West Virginia. You know, you probably heard about the cases there uh, that forced DuPont to actually uh, pay off a lot of people. I mean, we're talking about not millions, not tens of millions, but hundreds of millions of dollars in, in settlements. Then you can talk about Benlate, you know, their uh, weed killer, and how that destroyed uh, the crops of farmers all over the uh, United States and brought them into a position where they had to uh, pay out, again, a couple hundred million dollars in settlements. You know, what they do is they rush these products forward without testing them to see for their impact on, on the environment or on human health. And they're doing the same now with genetically modified seeds. This is not like in the old days of um, Harold Liggies or Morgenthau, the farmer who became Secretary of uh, Agriculture and then became uh, Vice President of Roosevelt. Uh, these are not people that you know do natural uh, modification, hybrid corns and so on. These are people that are going into the very structure of life and restructuring them into organisms that have never, never been seen on Earth before, and they're patenting them. They're saying they own them, and that's the basis for their now push into the third world with these, what we would call in the old days, the third world, but now is essentially the the underdeveloped world, pushing these uh, these single unicrop approaches through patented uh, seeds. As I said, that the AID is... By the way, I should also mention something else. The Agency for International Development had a private enterprise office, which, as I understand, is still open. Its first director was Governor Dupont's wife, Elise. In the 80s, uh, this was the company that pushed and insisted that any loans that were given abroad would be accompanied by a privatization drive whereby governments would be forced to start to sell off their public enterprises even if those public enterprises are turning a profit and open the grounds for uh, either the multinational corporations of America come moving in or for their uh, junior partners playing a role down in Latin America and other places. So the department has been involved in that as well. I think you get the idea that we're not just talking about paints. We're talking about real power, and if anybody has any doubts about this, I invite them to um, just do a Google on DuPont Company, and then do a Google on the DuPont family. And then, finally, if you're ever in Delaware, travel through northern Delaware and take a look at the estates and these huge chateaus that sit on top of mountains and uh, are surrounded by uh, so-called farms for which they get tax breaks. <laughs> or the, uh, the beautiful horticultural scenes that they've created uh, for themselves. And then when they die, they turn them into foundations dominated by their families that so they can still have enjoy, and they open to the public. So they get tax-free foundations in which they then bank a lot of their holdings, their families' holdings. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a real racket, That's all I can tell you. Um,
0: Do the DuPonts pay their fair share of taxes?
2: <laughs> oh, God. Uh, of course not. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, such a, that's a really old story. Since the 1890s, the Ponson were involved in shaping corporate law through providing very lenient requirements for a corporation to set up shop. You didn't even have to have a, a workplace. All you had to do was open an office it was like Delaware was like a Cayman Bank, you know, or in the Bahamas, where you have an office with a brass plate outside the office, you know, saying who you represent. And um, that's where a lot of money is parked. Well, in those days, it was Delaware. And then when the credit card companies all cut their deals with Governor DuPont, they moved into Delaware. And they got huge tax breaks. And even the Pond Company was given huge breaks in Delaware from something called a fixtures tax, where they were uh, given a lower rate than any other uh, industries. So you get the idea. And that's what, by the way, Ted Keller was spent all of his uh, retiree years, decades, fighting, but not succeeding in doing so. Nobody would touch that, including Biden. And what can I tell you? By the way, Biden's son was the one that let uh, this. As Attorney General, that was overseeing that case of uh, Richards, the child molester.
0: Jerry Colby, thank you very much. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Gerard Colby. Today's show has been DuPont, the secret political power. Gerard Colby is a freelance investigative journalist, author, and educator. He is the author of DuPont Dynasty, Behind the Nylon Curtain. Co-author with Charlotte Dennett of... Thy Will Be Done, The Conquest of the Amazon, Nelson Rockefeller and Evangelism in the Age of Oil, and a contributor to Into the Buzzsaw, Leading Journalists Expose the Myth of a Free Press, edited by Christina Borgeson. He is a former president of the National Writers' Union. DuPont Dynasty Behind the Nylon Curtain has been published as an e-book, available online at the Forbidden Bookshelf at Media. Dot com and in Kindle at amazon.com. Email Gerard Colby at G. Colby7777 at gmail.com. That's G-C-O-L-B-Y, the numbers 7777 at gmail.com. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit GunsAndButter.org to sign up for our newsletter and check out the blog for important articles and the opportunity to comment and share with other listeners. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio.
1: Hey, yo! of your own cypher, and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what's inside yourself, for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me, you got me?